Section thirty of the works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume One by Edmund Burke, Section thirty of thoughts on the cause of the present discontents part three a plan of favouritism for our executory government is essentially at variance with the plan of our legislator one great end undoubtedly of a mixed government like ours composed of monarchy and of controls on the part of the higher people and the lower is that the prince shall not be able to violate the laws this is useful indeed and fundamental but this even at first view is no more than a negative advantage an armour merely defensive it is therefore next in order and equal in importance that the discretionary powers which are necessarily vested in the monarch whether for the execution of the laws or for the nomination to magistracy and office or for conducting the affairs of peace and war or for ordering the revenue should all be exercised upon public principles and national grounds and not on the likings or prejudices the intrigues or policies of a court this i said is equal in importance to the securing a government according to law the laws reach but a very little way constitute government how you please infinitely the greater part of it must depend upon the exercise of the powers which are left at large to the prudence and uprightness of ministers of state even all the use and potency of the laws depends upon them without them your commonwealth is no better than a scheme upon paper and not a living active effective constitution it is possible that through negligence or ignorance or design artfully conducted ministers may suffer one part of government to languish another to be perverted from its purposes and every valuable interest of the country to fall into ruin and decay without possibility of fixing any single act on which a criminal prosecution can be justly grounded the due arrangement of men in the active part of the state far from being foreign to the purposes of a wise government ought to be among its very first and dearest objects when therefore the abettors of the new system tell us that between them and their opposers there is nothing but a struggle for power and that therefore we are no ways concerned in it we must tell those who have the impudence to insult us in this manner that of all things we ought to be the most concerned who and what sort of men they are that hold the trust of everything that is dear to us nothing can render this a point of indifference to the nation but what must either render us totally desperate or soothe us into the security of idiots we must soften into a credulity below the milkiness of infancy to think all men virtuous we must be tainted with a malignity truly diabolical to believe all the world to be equally wicked and corrupt men are in public life as in private some good some evil the elevation of the one and the depression of the other are the first objects of all true policy but that form of government which 
neither in its direct institutions nor in their immediate tendency has contrived to throw its affairs into the most trustworthy hands but has left its whole executory system to be disposed of agreeably to the uncontrolled pleasure of any one man however excellent or virtuous is a plan of polity defective not only in that member but consequently erroneous in every part of it in arbitrary governments the constitution of the ministry follows the constitution of the legislator both the law and the magistrate are the creatures of will it must be so nothing indeed will appear more certain on any tolerable consideration of this matter than that every sort of government ought to have its administration correspondent to its legislator if it should be otherwise things must fall into a hideous disorder the people of a free commonwealth who have taken such care that their laws should be the result of general consent cannot be so senseless as to suffer their executory system to be composed of persons on whom they have no dependence and whom no proofs of the public love and confidence have recommended to those powers upon the use of which the very being of the state depends the popular election of magistrates and popular disposition of rewards and honours is one of the first advantages of a free state without it or something equivalent to it perhaps the people cannot long enjoy the substance of freedom certainly none of the vivifying energy of good government the frame of our commonwealth did not admit of such an actual election but it provided as well and while the spirit of the constitution is preserved better for all the effects of it than by the method of suffrage in any democratic state whatsoever it had always until of late been held the first duty of parliament to refuse to support government until power was in the hands of persons who were acceptable to the people or while factions predominated in the court in which the nation had no confidence thus all the good effects of popular election were supposed to be secured to us without the mischiefs attending on perpetual intrigue and a distant canvas for every particular office throughout the body of the people this was the most noble and refined part of our constitution the people by their representatives and grandees were entrusted with a deliberative power in making laws the king with the control of his negative the king was entrusted with the deliberate choice and the election to office the people had the negative in a parliamentary refusal to support formerly this power of control was what kept ministers in awe of parliaments and parliaments in reverence with the people if the use of this power of control on the system and persons of administration is gone everything is lost parliament and all we may assure ourselves that if parliament will tamely see evil men take possession of all the strongholds of their country and allow them time and means to fortify themselves under the pretence of giving them a fair trial and upon a hope of discovering whether they will not be reformed by power and whether their measures will not be better than their morals such a parliament will give countenance to their measures also whatever the parliament may pretend and whatever those measures may be every good political institution must have a preventative operation as well as a remedial 
it ought to have a natural tendency to exclude bad men from government, and not to trust for the safety of the state to subsequent punishment alone. Punishment which has ever been tardy and uncertain, and which, when power is suffered in bad hands, may chance to fall rather on the injured than the criminal. Before men are put forward into the great trusts of the state, they ought by their conduct to have obtained such a degree of estimation in their country, as may be some sort of pledge and security to the public, that they will not abuse those trusts. It is no mean security for a proper use of power, that a man has shown by the general tenor of his actions, that the affection, the good opinion, the confidence of his fellow-citizens, have been among the principal objects of his life, and that he has owed none of the gradations of his power or fortune to a settled contempt, or occasional forfeiture of their esteem. That man who before he comes into power has no friends, or who coming into power is obliged to desert his friends, or who losing it has no friends to sympathise with him, he who has no sway among any part of the landed or commercial interest, but whose whole importance has begun with his office, and is sure to end with it, is a person who ought never to be suffered by a controlling parliament to continue in any of those situations which confer the lead and direction of all our public affairs, because such a man has no connection with the interest of the people. Those knots or cabals of men who have got together avowedly without any public principle, in order to sell their conjunct iniquity at the higher rate, and are therefore universally odious, ought never to be suffered to domineer in the state, because they have no connection with the sentiments and opinions of the people. These are considerations which, in my opinion, enforce the necessity of having some better reason in a free country and a free parliament for supporting the ministers of the crown than that short one that the king has thought proper to appoint them there is something very courtly in this but it is a principle pregnant with all sorts of mischief in a constitution like ours to turn the views of active men from the country to the court whatever be the road to power that is the road which will be trod if the opinion of the country be of no use as a means of power or consideration the qualities which usually procure that opinion will be no longer cultivated and whether it will be right in a state so popular in its constitution as ours to leave ambition without popular motives and to trust all to the operation of pure virtue in the minds of kings and ministers and public men must be submitted to the judgment and good sense of the people of England. Cunning men are here apt to break in, and without directly controverting the principle, to raise objections from the difficulty under which the sovereign labours, to distinguish the genuine voice and sentiments of his people, from the clamour of a faction by which it is so easily counterfeited. The nation, they say, is generally divided into parties, with views and passions utterly irreconcilable. If the king should put his affairs into the hands of any one of them, he is sure to discuss the rest. If he selects particular men from among them all, it is a hazard that he discuss them all. 
those who are left out, however divided before, will soon run into a body of opposition, which, being a collection of many discontents into one focus, will without doubt be hot and violent enough. Faction will make its cries resound through the nation, as if the whole were in an uproar, when by far the majority, and much the better part, will seem for a while as it were annihilated by the quiet in which their virtue and moderation incline them to enjoy the blessings of government. Besides that, the opinion of the mere vulgar is a miserable rule, even with regard to themselves, on account of their violence and instability, so that if you were to gratify them in their humour to-day, that very gratification would be a ground of their dissatisfaction on the next. Now, as all these rules of public opinion are to be collected with great difficulty, and to be applied with equal uncertainty as to the effect, what better can a king of England do than to employ such men as he finds to have views and inclinations most conformable to his own, who are at least infected with pride and self-will, and who are least moved by such popular humours as are perpetually transversing his designs, and disturbing his service, trusting that, when he means no ill to his people, he will be supported in his appointments, whether he chooses to keep or to change, as his private judgment or his pleasure leads him. He will find a sure resource in the real weight and influence of the crown, when it is not suffered to become an instrument in the hands of a faction. I will not pretend to say that there is nothing at all in this mode of reasoning, because I will not assert that there is no difficulty in the art of government. Undoubtedly the very best administration must encounter a great deal of opposition, and the very worst will find more support than it deserves. Sufficient appearances will never be wanting to those who have a mind to deceive themselves. It is a fallacy in constant use with those who would level all things, and confound right with wrong to insist upon the inconveniences which are attached to every choice, without taking into consideration the different weight and consequence of those inconveniences. The question is not concerning absolute discontent or perfect satisfaction in government, neither of which can be pure and unmixed at any time or upon any system. The controversy is about the degree of good humour in the people which may possibly be attained, and ought certainly to be looked for. While some politicians may be waiting to know whether the sense of every individual be against them, accurately distinguishing the vulgar from the better sort, drawing lines between the enterprises of a faction and the efforts of a people, they may chance to see the government, which they are so nicely weighing and dividing and distinguishing, tumble to the ground in the midst of their wise deliberation. Prudent men, when so great an object as the security of government, or even its peace is at stake, will not run the risk of a decision which may be fatal to it. They who can read the political sky will see a hurricane in a cloud, no bigger than a hand at the very edge of the horizon, and will run into the first harbour. No lines can be laid down for civil or political wisdom. They are a matter incapable of exact definition. But, 
though no man can draw a stroke between the confines of day and night yet light and darkness are upon the whole tolerably distinguishable nor will it be impossible for a prince to find out such a mode of government and such persons to administer it as will give a great degree of content to his people without any curious and anxious research for that abstract universal perfect harmony which while he is seeking he abandons those means of ordinary tranquillity which are in his power without any research at all it is not more the duty than it is the interest of a prince to aim at giving tranquillity to his government but those who advise him may have an interest in disorder and confusion if the opinion of the people is against them they will naturally wish that it should have no prevalence here it is that the people must on their part show themselves sensible of their own value their whole importance in the first instance and afterwards their whole freedom is at stake their freedom cannot long survive their importance here it is that the natural strength of the kingdom the great peers the leading landed gentlemen the opulent merchants and manufacturers the substantial yeomanry must interpose to rescue their prince themselves and their posterity we are at present at issue upon this point we are in the great crisis of this contention and the part which men take one way or other will serve to discriminate their characters and their principles until the matter is decided the country will remain in its present confusion for while a system of administration is attempted entirely repugnant to the genius of the people and not conformable to the plan of their government everything must necessarily be disordered for a time until this system destroys the constitution or the constitution gets the better of this system there is in my opinion a peculiar venom and malignity in this political distemper beyond any that i have heard or read of in former times the projectors of arbitrary government attacked only the liberties of their country a design surely mischievous enough to have satisfied a mind of the most unruly ambition but a system unfavourable to freedom may be so formed as considerably to exalt the grandeur of the state and men may find in the pride and splendour of that prosperity some sort of consolation for the loss of their solid privileges indeed the increase of the power of the state has often been urged by artful men as a pretext for some abridgment of the public liberty but the scheme of the junto under consideration not only strikes a palsy into every nerve of our free constitution but in the same degree benumbs and stupefies the whole executive power rendering government in all its grand operations languid uncertain ineffective making ministers fearful of attempting and incapable of executing any useful plan of domestic arrangement or of foreign politics it tends to produce neither the security of a free government nor the energy of a monarchy that is absolute accordingly the crown has dwindled away in proportion to the unnatural and turgid growth of this excrescence on the court the interior ministry are sensible 
that war is a situation which sets in its full light the value of the hearts of a people, and they well know that the beginning of the importance of the people must be the end of theirs. For this reason, they discover upon all occasions the utmost fear of everything, which by possibility may lead to such an event. I do not mean that they manifest any of that pious fear which is backward to commit the safety of the country to the dubious experiment of war. Such a fear, being the tender sensation of virtue, excited as it is regulated by reason, frequently shows itself in a seasonable boldness, which keeps danger at a distance by seeming to despise it. Their fear betrays to the first glance of the eye its true cause and its real object. Foreign powers, confident in the knowledge of their character, have not scrupled to violate the most solemn treaties, and, in defiance of them, to make conquests in the midst of a general peace, and in the heart of Europe. Such was the conquest of Corsica, by the professed enemies of the freedom of mankind, in defiance of those who were formerly its professed defenders. We have had just claims upon the same powers, rights which ought to have been sacred to them as well as to us, as they had their origin in our lenity and generosity towards France and Spain in the day of their great humiliation. Such I call the ransom of Manila, and the demand on France for the East India prisoners. But these powers put a just confidence in their resource of the double cabinet. These demands, one of them at least, are hastening fast towards an acquittal by prescription. Oblivion begins to spread her cobwebs over all our spirited remonstrances. Some of the most valuable branches of our trade are also on the point of perishing from the same cause. I do not mean those branches which bear without the hand of the vine-dresser. I mean those which the policy of treaties has formerly secured to us. I mean to mark and distinguish the trade of Portugal, the loss of which, and the power of the cabal, have one and the same era. If by any chance the ministers who stand before the curtain possess or affect any spirit, it makes little or no impression. Foreign courts and ministers, who were among the first to discover and to profit by this invention of the double cabinet, attend very little to their remonstrances. They know that those shadows of ministers have nothing to do in the ultimate disposal of things. Jealousies and animosities are sedulously nourished in the outward administration and have been even considered as a causa sine qua non in its constitution. Thence foreign courts have a certainty that nothing can be done by common counsel in this nation. If one of those ministers officially takes up a business with spirit, it serves only the better to signalise the meanness of the rest and the discord of them all. His colleagues in office are in haste to shake him off and to disclaim the whole of his proceedings. Of this nature was the astonishing transaction in which Lord Rochford, our ambassador at Paris, remonstrated against the attempt upon Corsica in consequence of a direct authority from Lord Shelburne. This remonstrance the French minister treated with the contempt that was natural, 
as he was assured from the ambassador of his court to ours that these orders of lord shelburne were not supported by the rest of the i had liked to have said british administration lord rochford a man of spirit could not endure this situation the consequences were however curious he returns from paris and comes home full of anger lord shelburne who gave the orders is obliged to give up the seals lord rochford who obeyed these orders receives them he goes however into another department of the same office that he might not be obliged officially to acquiesce in one situation under what he had officially remonstrated against in another at paris the duke of choiseul considered this office arrangement as a compliment to him here it was spoken of as an attention to the delicacy of lord rochford but whether the compliment was to one or both to this nation it was the same by this transaction the condition of our court lay exposed in all its nakedness our office correspondence has lost all pretence to authenticity british policy is brought into derision in those nations that a while ago trembled at the power of our arms whilst they looked up with confidence to the equity firmness and candour which shone in all our negotiations i represent this matter exactly in the light in which it has been universally received such has been the aspect of our foreign politics under the influence of a double cabinet with such an arrangement at court it is impossible it should have been otherwise nor is it possible that this scheme should have a better effect upon the government of our dependencies the first the dearest and most delicate objects of the interior policy of this empire the colonies know that administration is separated from the court divided within itself and detested by the nation the double cabinet has in both the parts of it shown the most malignant dispositions towards them without being able to do them the smallest mischief they are convinced by sufficient experience that no plan either of lenity or rigour can be pursued with uniformity and perseverance therefore they turn their eyes entirely from great britain where they have neither dependence on friendship nor apprehension from enmity they look to themselves and their own arrangements they grow every day into alienation from this country and whilst they are being disconnected with our government we have not the consolation to find that they are even friendly in their new independence nothing can equal the futility the weakness the rashness the timidity the perpetual contradiction in the management of our affairs in that part of the world a volume might be written on this melancholy subject but it were better to leave it entirely to the reflections of the reader himself than not to treat it in the extent it deserves in what manner our domestic economy is affected by this system it is needless to explain it is the perpetual subject of their own complaints the court party resolved the whole into faction having said something before upon this subject i shall only observe here that when they give this account of the prevalence of faction they present no very favourable aspect of the confidence of the people in their own government they may be assured that however they amuse themselves 
with a variety of projects for substituting something else in the place of that great and only foundation of government the confidence of the people every attempt will but make their condition worse when men imagine that their food is only a cover for poison and when they neither love nor trust the hand that serves it it is not the name of the roast beef of old england that will persuade them to sit down to the table that is spread for them when the people conceive that laws and tribunals and even popular assemblies are perverted from the ends of their institution they find in those names of degenerated establishments only new motives to discontent those bodies which when full of life and beauty lay in their arms and were their joy and comfort when dead and putrid become but the more loathsome from remembrance of former endearments a sullen gloom and furious disorder prevail by fits the nation loses its relish for peace and prosperity as it did in that season of fullness which opened our troubles in the time of charles i a species of men to whom a state of order would become a sentence of obscurity are nourished into a dangerous magnitude by the heat of intestine disturbances and it is no wonder that by a sort of sinister piety they cherish in their turn the disorders which are the parents of all their consequence superficial observers consider such persons as the cause of the public uneasiness when in truth they are nothing more than the effect of it good men look upon this distracted scene with sorrow and indignation their hands are tied behind them they are despoiled of all the power which might enable them to reconcile the strength of government with the rights of the people they stand in a most distressing alternative but in the election among evils they hope better things from temporary confusion than from established servitude in the meantime the voice of law is not to be heard fierce licentiousness begets violent restraints the military arm is the sole reliance and then call your constitution what you please it is the sword that governs the civil power like every other that calls in the aid of an ally stronger than itself perishes by the assistance it receives but the contrivers of this scheme of government will not trust solely to the military power because they are cunning men their restless and crooked spirit drives them to rake in the dirt of every kind of expedient unable to rule the multitude they endeavour to raise divisions amongst them one mob is hired to destroy another a procedure which at once encourages the boldness of the populace and justly increases their discontent men become pensioners of state on account of their abilities in the array of riot and the discipline of confusion government is put under the disgraceful necessity of protecting from the severity of the laws that very licentiousness which the laws had been before violated to repress everything partakes of the original disorder anarchy predominates without freedom and servitude without submission or subordination these are the consequences inevitable to our public peace from the scheme of rendering the executory government at once odious and feeble of freeing administration from the constitutional 
and salutary control of Parliament, and inventing for it a new control, unknown to the Constitution, an interior cabinet which brings the whole body of government into confusion and contempt. After having stated, as shortly as I am able, the effects of this system on our foreign affairs, on the policy of our government with regard to our dependencies, and on the interior economy of the Commonwealth, there remains only in this part of my design to say something of the grand principle which first recommended this system at court. The pretense was to prevent the king from being enslaved by a faction and made a prisoner in his closet. This scheme might have been expected to answer at least its own end and to indemnify the king in his personal capacity for all the confusion into which it has thrown this government. But has it in reality answered this purpose? I am sure if it had, every affectionate subject would have one motive for enduring with patience all the evils which attend it. In order to come at the truth in this matter, it may not be amiss to consider it somewhat in detail. I speak here of the King and not of the Crown, the interests of which we have already touched independence of that greatness which a king possesses merely by being a representative of the national dignity the things in which he may have an individual interest seem to be these wealth accumulated wealth spent in magnificence pleasure or beneficence personal respect and attention and above all private ease and repose of mind these compose the inventory of prosperous circumstances whether they regard a prince or a subject, their enjoyments differing only in the scale upon which they are formed. Suppose, then, we were to ask whether the king has been richer than his predecessors in accumulated wealth since the establishment of the plan of favouritism. I believe it will be found that the picture of royal indignance which our court has presented until this year has been truly humiliating nor has it been relieved from this unseemly distress, but by means which have hazarded the affection of the people and shaken their confidence in Parliament. If the public treasures had been exhausted in magnificence and splendour, this distress would have been accounted for, and in some measure justified. Nothing would be more unworthy of this nation than with a mean and mechanical rule to mete out the splendour of the crown. Indeed, I have found very few persons disposed to such ungenerous a procedure. But the generality of people, it must be confessed, do feel a good deal mortified when they compare the wants of the court with its expenses. They do not behold the cause of this distress in any part of the apparatus of royal magnificence. In all this, they see nothing but the operations of parsimony attended with all the consequences of profusion. Nothing expended, nothing saved. Their wonder is increased by their knowledge that besides the revenue settled on His Majesty's civil list to the amount of £800,000 a year, he has a farther aid from a large pension list, near £90,000 a year. In Ireland, from the produce of the Duchy of Lancaster, which we are told has been greatly improved, from the revenue of the Duchy of Cornwall, from the American quit-rents, 
from the four and a half percent duty in the leeward islands this last worth to be sure considerably more than forty thousand pound a year the whole is certainly not much short of a million annually there are revenues within the knowledge and cognizance of our national councils we have no direct right to examine into the receipts from his majesty's german dominions and the bishopric of osnaburg this is unquestionably true but that which is not within the province of parliament is yet within the sphere of every man's own reflection if a foreign prince resided amongst us the state of his revenues could not fail of becoming the subject of our speculation filled with an anxious concern for whatever regards the welfare of our sovereign it is impossible in considering the miserable circumstances into which he has been brought that this obvious topic should be entirely passed over there is an opinion universal that these revenues produce something not inconsiderable clear of all charges and establishments this produce the people do not believe to be hoarded nor perceive to be spent it is accounted for in the only manner it can by supposing that it is drawn away for the support of the court faction which whilst it distresses the nation impoverishes the prince in every one of his resources i once more caution the reader that i do not urge this consideration concerning the foreign revenue as if i supposed we had a direct right to examine into the expenditure of any part of it but solely for the purpose of showing how little this system of favouritism has been advantageous to the monarch himself which without magnificence has sunk him into a state of unnatural poverty at the same time that he possessed every means of affluence from ample revenues both in this country and in other parts of his dominions has this system provided better for the treatment becoming his high and sacred character and secured the king from those disgusts attached to the necessity of employing men who are not personally agreeable this is a topic upon which for many reasons i could wish to be silent but the pretence of securing against such cause of uneasiness is the cornerstone of the court party it has however so happened that if i were to fix upon any one point in which this system has been more particularly and shamefully blamable the effects which it has produced would justify me in choosing for that point its tendency to degrade the personal dignity of the sovereign and to expose him to a thousand contradictions and mortifications it is but too evident in what manner these projectors of royal greatness have fulfilled all their magnificent promises without recapitulating all the circumstances of the reign every one of which is more or less a melancholy proof of the truth of what i have advanced let us consider the language of the court but a few years ago concerning most of the persons now in the external administration let me ask whether any enemy to the personal feelings of the sovereign could possibly contrive a keener instrument of mortification and degradation of all dignity than almost every part and member of the present arrangement nor in the whole course of our history has any compliance with the will of the people 
ever been known to extort from any prince a greater contradiction to all his own declared affections and dislikes than that which is now adopted in direct opposition to everything the people approve and desire an opinion prevails that greatness has been more than once advertised to submit to certain condescensions towards individuals which have been denied to the entreaties of a nation for the meanest and most dependent instrument of this system knows that there are hours when its existence may depend upon its adherence to it and he takes his advantage accordingly indeed it is a law of nature that whoever is necessary to what we have made our object is sure in some way or in some time or other to become our master all this however is submitted to in order to avoid that monstrous evil of governing in concurrence with the opinion of the people for it seems to be laid down as a maxim that a king has some sort of interest in giving uneasiness to his subjects that all who are pleasing to them are to be of course disagreeable to him that as soon as the persons who are odious at court are known to be odious to the people it is snatched at as a lucky occasion of showering down upon them all kinds of emoluments and honours none are considered as well-wishers to the crown but those who advise to some unpopular course of action none capable of serving it but those who are obliged to call at every instant upon all its power for the safety of their lives none are supposed to be fit priests in the temple of government but the persons who are compelled to fly into it for sanctuary such is the effect of this refined project such is ever the result of all the contrivances which are used to free men from the servitude of their reason and from the necessity of ordering their affairs according to their evident interests these contrivances oblige them to run into a real and ruinous servitude in order to avoid a supposed restraint that might be attended with advantage if therefore this system has so ill answered its own grand pretence of saving the king from the necessity of employing persons disagreeable to him has it given more peace and tranquillity to his majesty's private hours no most certainly the father of his people cannot possibly enjoy repose while his family is in such a state of distraction then what has the crown or the king profited by all this fine wrought scheme is he more rich or more splendid or more powerful or more at his ease by so many labours and contrivances have they not beggared his exchequer tarnished the splendour of his court sunk his dignity galled his feelings discomposed the whole order and happiness of his private life it will be very hard i believe to state in what respect the king has profited by that faction which presumptuously choose to call themselves his friends end of section thirty